The FIR Podcast Network presents FIR B2B, an audio podcast that brings you the latest news and more in business-to-business communications. It's Paul Gillum with FIR, B2B, show number 24. And uh, this week we have a real interesting guest for you, Naomi Oreskes, the uh, co-author of uh, this, uh, the amazing book, memorable book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, will be joining us. Uh, my name is Paul Gillen. I'm here in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my co-host is... Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles, California. Pleasure to hear your voice, Eric. Um, we want to kick off right away with some news topics we want to discuss. And uh, Eric, I think you've got the first one. Well, this is an article that came uh, ran in the New York Times on uh, March 12th, uh, 2015. The headline was uh, Kleiner Perkins' Lawsuit and Rethinking the Confidence-Driven Workplace. And I'll just uh, sort of read you the intro here. Um, when a group of men and women took a science exam and scored the same, the women underestimated their performance and refused to enter a science fair while the men did the opposite. At Google, men were being promoted at a much higher rate than women because they were nominating themselves for promotion and women were not. And at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers, the venture capital firm currently on trial for gender discrimination, employees have described a culture in which the people who got ahead were those who hyped themselves and talked over others. Again, they were usually men. Uh, The confidence gap between men and women is well documented, but it's also clear that a lack of confidence does not necessarily equate to a lack of competence or the other way around. So the challenge for workplaces is to enable people uh, without natural swagger to be heard or get promoted. And at Kleiner Perkins, one solution uh, given to Ellen Powell, the former junior partner who's suing the firm, was uh, coaching to improve her speaking skills to participate in the firm's interrupt-driven environment. Uh, testimony continuing in Ms. Powell's lawsuit, uh, and the jury hasn't been able, hasn't been given the case to decide uh, whether Perkin, per, uh, Kleiner Perkins is liable, but the interruption coaching raises an interesting question. Is it the employee's responsibility to learn how to interrupt, or is, the, or is it the employer's job to create a, a culture in which people without the loudest voice or the most aggressive manner can still be heard? So it's an interesting story. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's still in trial, so there's no um, decision yet. But I certainly have a number of experiences in the workplace where, you know, if you didn't sort of speak up in meetings and talk over people and and butt heads effectively, you basically didn't get buy-in and support for whatever it is you were pitching. Well, I, uh, I'm glad you flagged this one. I have some strong opinions on this, uh, somewhat of a different angle, uh, because uh, I'm an introvert. And, uh, as, and introverts have a natural disadvantage in most organizations because of precisely the issue raised in this article. They're, they are reluctant to speak up. They tend to think things through. They don't sh- shoot from the hip. And this is, uh, it tends to be, um, uh, dis- uh, tends to be uh, penalized. Uh, by companies where really being being loud and aggressive is what gets you ahead. And I think of uh, there, there's a, a wonderful book that I read uh, last year called uh, called Quiet: The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. Highly recommend it, particularly to the inter- introverts in our audience. Uh, she really lays the the blame for the beginning, the origins of this trend uh, at winning friends and influencing people. 
a landmark book that really established that sales was an extrovert's world. And that has, um, uh, I think, continued to be a thread that runs throughout our organizations uh, where the people who make the noise, most noise tend to be the ones who get the most attention, regardless of whether they have anything uh, useful to say. Uh, the fact that they say it first it tends to, uh, to work to their advantage. Uh, you, you know, what do organizations need to do? Do they need to provide coaching? I would say what they need to do is they need to provide tolerance. They need to teach the people at the top that the people who don't make a lot of noise in meetings that doesn't mean that they don't have anything to say. It just means that they're thinking more about what they have to say, and chances are what comes out of their mouths is going to be more uh, more relevant, more thoughtful, uh, more introspective, and is going to and it will be a better quality of contribution than the people who just talk all the time. So in this case, at Kleiner Perkins, I think we've exposed a, a culture that uh, you know where the Dale Carnegie model was uh, very much rewarded, and uh, I think it's a uh, an example of what corporations should uh, should avoid in, in the way they coach their top executives. Well, I think it runs deeper with in, in this case because it's a gender issue. And of course, you know, if, if you're female, you know, you may feel like, oh, my God, I can't I'm not the one who should interrupt. Um, what's disheartening to me about it is, you know, you think about these organizations, these storied organizations like Connor Perkins and Google, and you think, you know, it's probably different there because people are so smart there and they're recruited based on their intellect and their engineers and they obviously know better and this is the place where probably the soft-spoken genius is heard and you see here that it's really no different there than it is everywhere else. Well, a company like Kleiner Perkins is probably somewhat different than a company like Google because in an engineering culture, uh, I mean, you have a disproportionate number of, of introverts in engineering, uh, whereas in a venture capital culture, a lot of these people are you know, successful business people in their own right, and they are, they're great salespeople, and you know, that's why they've won. So I'm less surprised to see that in a Kleiner Perkins. I, I, the, another point you raised, though, Eric, is, is important, which is the gender, uh, the gender issue and the miserable performance of Valley companies in particular at, uh, at promoting women um, and continuing to this uh, this uh, underrepresentation of women in science and engineering fields and I think this is getting some attention now that it, that it finally deserves and of course your second story is a Google story yeah well it's a very interesting uh, bit of research that came out of Google appeared in ad age uh, last week millennial influence on the rise in b2b buying and I'll read you a, a clip here 40 46 percent of potential buyers researching b2b products are Millennials today up from 27 percent in 2012 from 27 to 46 they're now the biggest generational group researching b2b products for a potential purchase the report goes on to say that uh, a major behavioral difference with this group is that uh, is their use of mobility. 34% of those people involved in being uh, B2B buying purchases in 2014 use mobile devices across every stage of the purchase. In 2012, that number was only 18%, so nearly doubled in just two years. And uh, they also use video uh, very heavily, 70% um, uh, using video for research, up from 46% in 2012. And this, it goes back to a point that um, you know, we've raised on the podcast before, which is, A, the importance of mobile enabling your web presence. And by the way, Google is about to drive that home because effective 20, April 21st, Google has said that sites that are mobile optimized will get favorable um, uh, favorable presence in Google search results. But also, I just think the fact that that the B2B, that uh, millennials are now the number one most important uh, research constituent in B2B buying 
uh, purchases, be, be buying decisions, means you know that worm has turned. These people are the people that you need to be tuning your messages to. And I still see too many B2B companies are serving uh, the convenient group, you know, the, the people in their 50s and 60s who the, the CEOs have known for a long time. Those people are, are rapidly moving out of the mainstream of the decision cycle, at least according to this research. And uh, they are going to, and, and this is a very new audience coming on. It's an audience you have to get to know. Well, I don't know if I agree 100%. I mean, certainly, I think early funnel, um, you know, awareness stage uh, marketing, that is certainly going to be the younger audience. But I think, you know, it's the, the decision maker is still probably, you know, a little older and probably not the one actually doing the, the research online. But clearly, I think, uh, you know, the announcement on April 22nd that uh, Google is going to start looking at mobility as a factor in search rank. Um, and, you know, the importance of being able to serve up a mobile web page, um, I, I think these two stories probably go hand in hand. It's probably one of the one of the reasons why they're why they've decided to do that is because they have this research here that, you know, so many people now are going uh, mobile for for uh, B2B research and all sorts of other, uh, you know, web usage. We don't have time to get into the, the whole buying decision issue here, but it's an interesting point that you raise. Uh, oh, come I've on, heard, Paul. Let's get into <laughs> it right here. I've heard this so many times over the years that, well, the, the person you want to reach is the one who signs the check, and, and I think that's vastly oversimplified. The uh, person who signs the check very often assigns the responsibility for uh, for putting the check in front of him or her to people lower in the organization. Uh, they don't have the time or the expertise to research all of these persons purchases. And so uh, they trust their staffs. Good managers certainly trust their staffs to guide them. And, and the idea that you're going to get, uh, you're, you're going to make the sale by just uh, appealing to the person at the top is is ignoring the way the buying process works. We'll, we'll cover that in another book. We will. So <laughs> our, our next item is um, an annual uh, marketing data benchmark report from Dun & Bradstreet's uh, Net Prospects. Uh, they're a CRM, and of course, Dun & Bradstreet uh, sells uh, uh, customer lists. They analyzed uh, 223 million records and identified that more than nine, uh, 71% have gaps in accuracies. Um, the report, which is the third annual edition, aggregates data collected over the course of the last year from the Data Health Scan service provided by the company's Workbench product. Um, and based on industry research and in-depth analysis of 223 million records from a broad range of organizations throughout uh, the course of last year, uh, they examined files across four key functional areas, including record uh, completeness, email deliverability, phone connectability, and record duplication. Um, each best practice area was broken down and gauged the respective health scores in aggregate and by industry segment. And these are sort of the top line findings of the report here. So 62% of the files analyzed returned email deliverability scores that ranked as questionable or worse. Uh, more than 66% of the records were missing revenue or industry data, which are two critical components of lead scoring and effective segmentation and targeting. And 41% of the records did not include a working phone number in the contact information. Um, we'll have a link to the full report uh, in the show notes if you want to check it out. But uh, yeah, it's nice to see this. Certainly, as someone who buys lists and uses lists, I'm not surprised. And as someone who uses my Yahoo email address when I download a uh, a PowerPoint or or a um, a, a white paper, 
Um, you know, I, I, it, it's so difficult to actually get your arms around good data for email marketing. We all know everyone checks their email. We all know it's the place to be. Yet getting good data to go after that list is, is so, so difficult. And the basic takeaway from the report is forget about quantity. It's all about quality. Yeah, we, we should point out, by the way, that this report was produced by Dun & Bradstreet Net Prospects, which is a CRM company, competes with sales. It's, it's a prospecting company, basically a data uh, uh, company that sells data about uh, sales prospects. So there is a little bit of, of um, uh, self-interest here, but it is still Dun & Bradstreet putting their name on it. And, I, and frankly, I was surprised that the 71% number, I was surprised that wasn't 100% because I, I, think, I think just about every company has data quality problems with, uh, with their lead database. And uh, people don't often realize the you know the impact that this has. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, about once a week I get invitations, uh, press invitations from PR agencies inviting me to some sort of a uh, some sort of event in the Bay Area. Now I live about uh, 2,800 miles away from the Bay Area, and and I've asked people, you know, where does where do you get? Why are you doing this? It's insulting that you don't know. We're supposed to have a relationship, and you don't know that I that I'm not available. To go to this this uh, event, and I'm also not, and also people uh, who I compete with are available. To go to the event, and you've made no accommodation for me. That's just a small example of how having bad information about a customer can actually create a a, a, a reaction that's the opposite of what you want. Um, so, you know, absolutely. I mean, good. Day. I'm surprised there aren't better um, technology solutions to this problem right now. What I'd like to know, and if there's anyone listening that has an answer to this question, boy, would I be grateful for, for this answer. So we all know that as we visit different websites and, and social networking services, those services leave cookies on our machines. And there are all sorts of um, uh, uh, ad networks that basically pull those cookies together and try to identify us and parse us demographically against those multiple cookies. Well, I mean, she's. I'm. I'm going to to Yahoo, and I'm logging into Yahoo uh, for my uh, spam email account. I'm also logging into Gmail. I also use social networks. Is there a service out there that we can turn to to overlay data sets and and cross correlate and 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 improve accuracy that way? That's what I'm looking for. Don't know. Great question. So, if you've got an answer for us, uh, send us a comment. We'll feature it in the next show. Or uh, go ahead and leave us a, uh, a text comment on the, uh, on the show blog. Our guest today is Dr. Naomi Oreskes. She is an American historian of science who serves as professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary science, sciences at Harvard. Her book, Merchants of Doubt, has been praised and attacked for telling with brutal clarity the unsettling story of how a loose-knit group of high-level scientists with political and industry ties ran effective campaigns to mislead the public and deny conclusive scientific evidence that had withstood critical review by a jury of scientific peers with nothing more than circumstantial allegations. Her book also identifies parallels between the climate change debate and earlier controversies over the adverse health impacts of smoking in which big tobacco-funded research intended to delay regulatory and legislative action by spreading doubt and confusion on the scientific consensus that smoking is dangerous to your health.
Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, I, I just to you know, full disclosure, I'm currently serving as digital climate change advisor to the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Oceans, Environmental and Scientific Affairs. And when I first started poking around, I was amazed at how many of my friends, you know, people who I consider to be educated, well-read, attentive to media, said they weren't convinced that climate change was real. And, you know, you start looking at the evidence that's out there, the fact that 97 percent of scientists you know, agree with peer with peer reviewed studies that say climate change is happening and it's man made. Well, why is there why is this even a question? Why is there so much doubt out there? Well, it's a question for the exactly the reason that we address in the book and in the film, because we've been listening for more than 20 years now to a delivery campaign whose whole purpose is to make us think that it's a question. So educate people, listen to the radio, watch television, read newspapers, and what they hear is this mantra, the science isn't settled, we aren't really sure, here's an expert who disagrees. And especially if you're not following the issue very, very closely, which most of us, of course, are not, what you hear is this sort of background noise of uncertainty, and that background noise gives you an impression, and that's the impression that you come away with. I think what what struck me most about your book, I, I, knowing that you're a scientist and not a psychologist, but this was a this is a book about psychology fundamentally, and it's about the uh, the tendency of people to embrace doubt as a reason to not believe something, even if that if there's overwhelming evidence to uh, positive evidence. What is it about about human psychology that that makes us susceptible to this kind of doubt? Well, the book isn't about psychology, and of course we're not psychologists, we're historians of science, but I think one of the things that the story shows is that if we're supplied with a reason to doubt something that we would rather was not true, it's very easy to just accept that. So global warming is a bad news story. All of us would prefer that it's not weren't true. I mean, nobody wants the world to be damaged by dangerous, you know, interference in the climate system. So if we'd rather it wasn't true, and now someone comes along and says, well, you know, we don't really know, the we don't know story is a much more comfortable conclusion than, oh, yes, we do know, and some, we really need to change the way we live. So it's very easy for people to sort of slip into the, well, you know, we're not really sure, and therefore I, me, as a person, a citizen, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to worry about this because scientists aren't sure anyway. So let's let's get into, I guess, the the tactics around how we got to where we are from a doubt standpoint. Talk to us about how the fossil fuel industry funds these industry front groups to make it seem as though their positions are independent and unbiased, and how these front groups use the fair uh, fairness doctrine to argue for equal time, and uh, and why those actions, you know, are a criminal conspiracy to commit fraud. Okay, a lot of good questions there. So the overall strategy is what we call doubt mongering. It's to raise questions so that people aren't persuaded and therefore that we, we citizens and politicians think that it would be premature to act. The whole point is to delay action and to continue to have another day, another year, another decade in which we can sell whatever the product is, whether it's cigarettes or burn coal that produces acid rain or produce chemicals that deplete the ozone layer or use fossil fuels. So the strategy is one of delay. But 
you know, the American people aren't idiots. If a tobacco industry executive gets up in public and says, well, we think smoking is safe, most of us know that that's not really credible. And most of us recognize that the tobacco industry executive has a strong economic self-interest in denying the science. So what the industry realized early on was that for this to be credible, they had to speak to spokesmen who were more credible. And that took two forms. One form was recruiting scientists, finding scientists who, for whatever reason, were willing to say, willing to take the tobacco industry position and say, well, I'm an expert and I don't agree. And that was a really, really important part of the strategy, particularly in persuading the media, journalists, to present, quote, both sides, to challenge the scientific evidence with an expert who was also a scientist um, who would help create the impression of a scientific debate. So that's a key part of the strategy. Scientists are really crucial, and that's why this idea of the 97% is so important. It's important for the public to realize that, yes, there are some scientists who um, don't think that tobacco is dangerous. Even today, there are scientists who think that. And there are some scientists who aren't persuaded that climate change is caused by people, but the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists in both of these cases believe that, yes, uh, smoking kills you, can kill you, and, yes, greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels cause climate change. So that's why we stress in our work, and many, many scientists now are stressing this as well, that what's important for citizens to understand is, you know, what the views of the vast majority of scientists are. Now, the second part of the strategy, as you mentioned, is think tanks. So one of the things we documented in the book and in the film is how industry funnels money to groups that appear to be independent, um, what they call third-party allies. Sometimes these are groups that really are independent in the sense that they predate the tobacco industry or they have no formal relationship to the fossil fuel industry. So this includes libertarian and conservative think tanks like the Cato Institute, the Heartland Institute, uh, the American Enterprise, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, or in other cases, it's groups that are truly fund groups that are created solely for the purpose of spreading the industry message but making it seem like it's independent. So in the book, we talk at length about an organization called the Advancement of Sound Science Coalition. This was a group that claimed to be promoting the use of sound science and public policy. Now, that sounds good. It sounds like science. Any of us would say, of course we want sound science. Nobody wants bad science. But the reality is that this group, the Advancement of Sound Science Coalition, was actually a front organization created by the Philip Morris tobacco industry. And we even found one document that explicitly said we must be sure to hide the Philip Morris fingerprints. And then what about the equal time part? Uh, how, does, how, does, how does the uh, sort of independent, unbiased opinion combine with the equal time fairness doctrine to try to guarantee uh, a, a share of the voice on, on television and in the media. The idea of equal time is absolutely crucial to this strategy. So in the early days when this was first developing, the tobacco industry and other groups would demand equal time under the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine required broadcast journalists to give equal time to opposing viewpoints. Uh, some older listeners will remember when we were children growing up on television you know, there would be these uh, opportunities for other groups to present opposing opinions. So the tobacco industry and some of these other groups, if a journalist, if a newspaper, a radio, a television station ran a piece on the dangers of tobacco, they would demand equal time for their position 
which was that tobacco was safe or that we didn't really know. And so this was a key part of the strategy of creating confusion. Now, the irony is that the fairness doctrine no longer exists. It was repealed during the Reagan administration, who argued that cable news, cable television, had made the fairness doctrine obsolete. But nevertheless, the strategy continued, and it continued to work, because many, many journalists have an ideal of balance, an ideal of fairness, and have this idea that balance equal, means equal time for opposing views. And the problem with that, of course, is that it actually makes no sense because some views have evidence behind them and some views don't. Some views are supported by science and some views are disinformation. So the media has been a big part of the story by keeping alive views that are not supported by the scientific evidence and yet presenting them as if they have equal validity. And that, I think, has been a very, very damaging part of this whole story. I wonder if many members of the media even know that the uh, fairness doctrine was repealed. I, I, I'm curious about your uh, about the story of the cigarette industry, and this is a case where I think we can agree that science did ultimately triumph over doubt and, and successfully vilified tobacco, and uh, and that you know, that is a great success story. What can we learn from that that can be applied to some of these other areas where there still is a, a great debate? Well, what we've always said, and what we say in the book is that. There's two ways to read the story, an optimistic way and a pessimistic way. The optimistic way is that in all of these other episodes that we discussed, tobacco, acid rain, the ozone hole, eventually society did assimilate and understand the scientific evidence, and eventually we acted on the scientific evidence, and steps were taken to reduce the harm. So far fewer Americans smoke today than in the 1960s. Acid rain was greatly reduced in the Midwest and Northeast and Canada and Europe as well, and the ozone layer has been protected and is now recovering. So these are good news stories that tell us that it is possible for us to get past doubt-mongering, to understand the scientific evidence, and to have good, informed public policy that addresses the question and actually solves or, or makes good progress on solving the problem. The problem with climate change, oh, what I say, but the bad news of this story is that in the case of tobacco, it took 50 years. And in the case of climate change, we don't have 50 years. 20 years have already gone by since um, scientists first told us that global warming was discernible. Uh, so we have, you know, if we take the tobacco model as representative, we might imagine it will take us another 30 years before we finally sort this out. But we don't have 30 years. The scientific community has made it very, very clear that unless we begin to cut greenhouse gas emissions essentially immediately, we don't have any serious chance of avoiding the two-degree threshold that so many scientists think, you know, represents the threshold between relative safety and potentially serious danger. In the film, there's a scene where um, someone is speaking at the uh, Heartland Institute event in Vegas. I don't remember who it was. Um, but he was, uh, you know, representing, he, he was basically debating a, a climate change denier and there That's were folks, summer. okay. And there were folks standing up in the room, just so screaming at him angrily and just not open to any sort of, you know, productive civil discourse about the issue, which, you know, leads you to think, and it's one of the things that, you know, the film says, it's not a debate about science. It's a debate about something else. What is at stake here? 
in terms of the, the other side of the argument? What are they worried about? Well, I'm going to say that's a great, great moment of film. I think it's so wonderful that Robbie Kenner got that on, on film because, as you say, it really shows that for many people this has become an incredibly emotional and incredibly threatening issue. So, as you say, in this film we see Michael Shermer, who is a politically very conservative person, basically a libertarian, and he sees himself as, you know, essentially being on the same side as these folks politically, and yet when he tries to say to them, look, this is real, the scientific evidence is overwhelming, these men, and it is men in the audience, you know, are yelling at him. They accuse him of lying. Um, they're, as you say, they're extraordinarily angry and vehement. So obviously this tells us this is not about the science. This is about the feeling of being threatened. And one of the things we say in the film, I think that this is right, is that people feel that we're threatening the American way of life, that we're saying the way you live is bad, that we're saying that actually you are a bad person because the way you live has created this terrible problem. And this, I think, is an extremely important message for scientists and environmentalists and anyone who cares about this issue to understand. We're not saying that Americans are bad people. What we're saying is that we have a problem. And it's not our fault in the sense that when we first started using fossil fuels more than 100 years ago, we didn't know that we were going to change the climate and create this very, very serious problem. So it's not the fault of the people you know, the engineers who first developed fossil fuels or the industry that we built around it, or us as citizens. But now we do know, and because we know now, going forward, if we don't do something, it will be our fault. But many people still find that a very, very challenging conclusion because essentially it's saying that we need to change our energy system, we need to change the way we live. And so one of the things I've been trying to do in, in my own work is to think about what are the ways that we can address this problem and still address people's concerns about freedom of choice, personal liberty, being able to choose the lifestyle we want? And the answer is there are solutions that do address those concerns, and so those are the solutions that it's very important for us to be talking about. I, I, I want to bring this back to maybe a more mundane point, but it's, it's one that's relevant to our audience who are business marketers, and that is the use of of doubt, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the use of doubt in a more of a day-to-day -day business context and a competitive context where where uh, competitors may use doubt against you to sway customers against a decision in your favor. Uh, do you have any advice on how to know when doubt, or how to, I guess, how to come back uh, when doubt is being used against you? Well, I think it's very easy to know when it's happening because there are certain sort of key phrases that appear over and over again. We're not really sure. The science isn't settled. We don't really know. Or most recently, this line, I'm not a scientist. Uh, Gail Collins had a great reply to that in the New York Times. That would be like a politician say, well, what do I know about tax policy? I'm not an accountant. You know, so, but when you hear those phrases, I'm not an expert, I'm not a scientist, I don't really know, those are all tells that somebody is engaged in doubt-mongering. Now, what you do about it is, of course, is very, very difficult. And this is why this whole story is so troubling and why this strategy is so pernicious. It's extremely hard to challenge doubt because what is the, what is the alternative to doubt? Certainty. But the reality is that science doesn't give us certainty. Science is intrinsically uncertain because science is a quest for knowledge. And any time you're trying to learn new things about the world, there will always be openness, and a scientist has to be open. It's a good thing about science that scientists are open, that they're skeptical, that they're questioning. 
So how you respond to that without giving a false view of scientific certainty? And so I think one of the things that scientists have, are learning to do is to say, look, we don't know everything, but just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we know nothing. And in life, we all make decisions all the time based on incomplete information. You know, if, if we all needed certainty, nobody would ever get married, right? Nobody would ever have children. Nobody would ever change jobs. So we all act all the time in the face of uncertainty, but it doesn't paralyze us, and there's no reason it should paralyze us um, in this issue either. In the case of business, you know, I don't know, business is a little different than science, so I haven't really thought about how a business person would address that, but I suppose something, you know, something similar. We may not know for sure, but we sure know a heck of a lot about, you know, this product or this activity. Who is Ben Santer? What happened to him? And what might he have done differently to change the outcome of his fate? Ben Sander is a scientist, an American scientist, a very brilliant scientist who won a MacArthur Genius Award, who works for the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And he was the scientist who led the team who first said the scientific evidence is sufficient to know that climate change is caused by people. So this is what scientists call detection and attribution. Scientists have known since the 1980s that climate change was happening, but it's one thing to know it's happening. It's another thing to know it's causing it. So Ben led the team that in 1995 said that the human fingerprint was, in fact, discernible. And in response to that important piece of scientific work, Ben became the target of a vicious, uh, very unprincipled and very personal attack on him, accusing him of being fraudulent, uh, accusing him of being dishonest, accusing him of doctoring scientific reports to match some alleged American policy on climate that didn't, in fact, even exist. Um, and it was a very painful and difficult experience for Ben because he was the first of what would be, later become many scientists to be subject to these sorts of attacks. Uh, now, when this happens, scientists know what's going on. Um, I, I might say, I think, you know, in part because of the work we and other people have done, but Ben had no idea. So it was a very painful and very difficult experience for him. Um, and it's something that, you know, well, something that even now he looks back on, and, you know, a kind of a dark moment in his career, although, um, you know, he continued to do science and continues to do science today. And uh, he's such a great guy. He continues to express gratitude and appreciation for the opportunity to have this wonderful career as a scientist, despite the completely unprincipled attacks on him that took place. In the film, there is, a, and I don't remember who it was, but there's a scientist who says, look, you know, we have to defend ourselves. We have to, we can't just do the science anymore. We actually have to learn to defend our point of view in the world of media. And you think about where we are now with social media. You know, you were kind enough to agree to do this interview with us via Twitter. I solicited this interview from you via Twitter. You responded. And I think that's how we made uh, the connection. And so, you know, there aren't, you know, not everybody's Michael E. Mann who's out on Twitter, you know, um, defending his point of view. Uh, and you get uh, the sense in the film that there's a number of scientists who really just want to do their their science. They, they don't really want to have to defend what they're doing, you know, in, the, in, in social media. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where we are with that? I mean, should all scientists be media trained at this point? Most scientists just want to do their science. That's why scientists become scientists, because they love science, they love the natural world, they love the challenge of trying to understand the complexity and the beauty of the natural world. So, and as James Hansen says in the film, science is also very hard, 
it's hard enough to do the science and get it right without being told now that you also have to become a good communicator and a media expert and learn how to use Twitter. So I think it's not fair to expect that all scientists should be effective communicators. What I do think is that some scientists need to do it, and I think that the scientific community should support and defend and thank the scientists like Jim Hansen or like Mike Mann who have been willing to take the time to develop those skills and to speak in public because it is time-consuming, time-consuming, and it's not easy, and it's especially not easy for scientists, many of whom are kind of intrinsically introverted people. Um, I was a scientist before I became a historian of science, and people used to comment that I was extraordinarily extroverted for a scientist. Uh, my father even once said that he was surprised I had so many friends considering how good I was at science. So, you know, that gives you some idea of the challenges for the scientific community uh, to reach out and be good communicators. Uh, Naomi, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this interview. Uh, the book is uh, uh, Merch to Doubt. Uh, the, uh, the film is currently in a limited release in Los Angeles, uh, New York, and uh, Washington. Uh, but I'm sure it will be uh, broadly available soon, and if not, in theaters. Can I, can I just jump in on that? Actually, we are having a broad release. It's going to theaters across America on March 20th. Uh, virtually every major metropolitan area now is on the distribution list for the next few weeks. So the film will be broadly available, and then, of course, available to DVD and Netflix and all the rest, probably in June. It is the most important documentary I've ever seen in my life. And if you are in communications, if you're in the communications business and you don't see this film, in my opinion, you are derelict. And I'll say, even, well, if, thank you, you so much. even if you aren't in the communications business, and, and I know as an author that the, the best thing anybody has ever said to me is your book changed my life. And I would say that to you, Naomi. I, I will not be the same after reading this book. It really is a, it really is a breakthrough. Well, very, very eye-opening. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words. Wow. Uh, you know, Eric, when you suggested that that we bring Naomi on the show, I, I uh, had not, I knew nothing about the book. I, I since uh, listened to the book on on Audible in a, uh, a very long, a uh, couple of car rides, thirteen hour uh, book, absolutely riveting every bit of the way. And you know what struck me uh, was about a question that I asked her about psychology, and, and she really. She didn't want to answer that question because she's a scientist. She's not a psychologist. But what kept coming through to me about all of the stories that are told in that book, and it's not just about global warming. It goes back to to uh, the tobacco controversy, to uh, the ozone hole, to uh, uh, to acid rain, uh, even to Rachel Carson and DDT. She goes time, example after example. You see how these organizations that have vested interests that were under threat used doubt and were able to seed tiny elements of doubt to convince people not to believe overwhelming amounts of scientific evidence. And I, I have to believe that, I have to say that in the last six months or so, I have become a bit of a doubter on global warming myself because I've seen some comments uh, from you know, reputable scientists that have led me to believe that this is, that maybe there is reason for doubt. After reading this book, I am no longer a doubter. I know what's going on here and I understand much better how science works and and how we should understand uh, what science, how we should understand truth that is, is is interpreted by scientists. It's a fantastic read. Why do you think it is that the organizations responsible for the for the real science didn't get out in front of the issue and 
go back to the media and say, look, here's the difference between peer-reviewed science and circumstantial allegations. And for you guys to give equal time to both sides when one side is an opinion and one side is fact is just wrong. Why do you think they didn't nip that in the bud? A couple of reasons uh, that they bring up in the book. One is that scientists are not great public relations people. They believe that their work will speak for itself. And so you don't see... This is why Carl Sagan was such an anomaly. Uh, he was a guy who had, who had a great communications ability on, on a top of uh, on top of of solid scientific skills but but he's he's rare so the scientific community is not really trained these people are not trained to speak up for themselves another thing is very important that she brought up in the interview is is this idea of fair uh, of um a fair, fair representation, fair doctrine, doctrine, yeah, which is still widely practiced in the media, and the belief that that uh, opposing sides of an issue deserve equal time. And as they, she points out in the interview, and and they point out in spades in the book that when three percent of of the scientific community believes something, and ninety seven percent believes something else, they should not get equal time. That is not an even split. Yet the media tends to practice that because the media likes a good fight. And now as media has has uh, degraded, particularly um, uh, broadcast media, has degraded into increasingly just a shouting match. Um, this appeal of having two widely divergent opinions beat each other up is even more is even more strong. And and so the end result is the issue has become so polarized. I went to breakfast with a friend of mine who's a doctor, a very smart guy, good friend of mine, and we got into the subject of of climate change. And it became – the conversation got so heated and so contentious, uh, when we say goodbye, he wouldn't shake my hand. Yeah, that's that's ugly. And I, I've, I mean, this gets into the echo chamber and how, uh, ironically, the, the Internet is supposed to make us more uh, empowered with, with better quality information. In fact, we are a more polarized society than we have been certainly in my lifetime. Um, I don't know what you do about that. The the issue of science, uh, as they explain in, in detail in the book, is that the science is not an absolute. Uh, scientists do not seek absolute certainty because it's almost never possible to have absolute certainty. What you seek is consensus, and that's about the best you can get. And even in the even in the tobacco question, I mean, there are still some reasons to that it's never been definitively proved that that smoking causes cancer it's just there's an overwhelming body of evidence and thousands of studies that would indicate that but you can't prove these things you can only get close to proof and and if if you are an opponent if you are negatively impacted by this you start pounding the table and demanding proof and well science can't give you proof and that's not how it works well, um, you know, just taking another run at it, I uncovered a study uh, by uh, Henry Paulson. Well, they were the co-chairs of the study. Uh, former uh, uh, tre treasurer to uh, uh, George Bush, Henry Paulson, GOP, um, Michael Bloomberg, uh, certainly a, a social liberal but a, a fiscal conservative, and um, a VC out of, um, gosh, Tom Steyer, a billionaire hedge fund guy, all backed a study called Risky Business where they basically hired a nonpartisan group to study the economic impacts of, of, uh, of climate change. And so they're doing it. It's a B2B study, very interesting at a high level with a lot of GOP CEOs and chairmen talking about what, what is the financial impact of, of this you know, when, it, when it happens. And it's interesting that there's not nearly the resistance when you look at not the, necessarily the science but the economic impact. 
Yeah, and uh, there's actually a, a passage in the book about the whole global warming thing concerning one of these scientific reports where a large number of scientists were encouraged to define their, their findings in terms of economic uh, impacts as well as scientific, as well as climactic impacts, and, and and they didn't want to do this, and they essentially had their uh, their arms twisted uh, uh, to define it in those terms. It, it wasn't their area of expertise; they didn't feel qualified to say that. But that's what the study uh, the sponsors wanted. In any case, we could go on for a long time on this. Uh, the book is Merchants of Doubt. It is uh, uh, just a riveting, very, very compelling and very important book. Eric, thank you for turning me on to it. The movie is going to be, uh, as Ms. Naomi said, it's going to be broadly available uh, uh, shortly, and uh, I hope everyone will, will uh, see it. So that does it for Episode 24 of FIR B2B. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to FIR B2B, a bi-weekly podcast about B2B marketing. FIR B2B is brought to you in association with Lawrence Reagan Communications, serving communicators worldwide for more than 35 years. You'll find more information at www.reagan.com. That's R-A-G-A-N. FIR B2B is part of the FIR Podcast Network, a series of business podcasts founded by Neville Hobson and Shell Holtz. The anchor podcast in the network is the Hobson and Holtz Report, a weekly show presented since January 2005. For information about FIR, to see show notes for the podcasts, and to subscribe, visit www.forimmediaterelease.biz. You can also subscribe via iTunes and other podcast directories. We welcome your comments about FIR B2B. Join the conversation in the FIR community on Google+. Look for the FIR podcast community or email us at fircomments at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.